It's not going to be one state or one country or one sector. It's going to take all of us working together. And I've seen more collaboration than I've ever seen in my very long career. And I feel optimistic because people are focused on implementation, not just the talking at the meeting, how to, how do we do uh, transition to carbon neutrality, making sure that we don't sacrifice food productivity is going to require significant investment and allow us to continue to nourish people while also being good stewards of the land and helping fight climate change. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. All over the world, people are looking to Glasgow, Scotland, and this particular week is wrapping up COP26. From California, we have... uh, a representative there. Agriculture has a representative there. Uh, my friend, the Secretary of Agriculture for California, Karen Ross. Karen, how is it in Glasgow, Scotland? Roger. Well, I don't have anything to compare it to except Edinburgh, but that was for pleasure. This is for work. Um, this is my first COP. And honestly, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I really... Um, was was so honored that the governors asked us to be here. We've been rotating as cabinet members. And there's a couple of reasons why I thought it was really important to be here, Roger. One is that the, the incorporation of nature-based solutions, solutions from the land, has been a very strong theme here that I've not seen in other COPs. And so that was very important for me. For me, I really wanted to hold up our farmers and ranchers who can lead on solutions because they are stewards of the land. They're closer to the issues. And if we stop trying to blame people and empower them, farmers and ranchers figure this stuff out faster than anyone. And so engaging farmers and ranchers was something I really wanted as a message. And so uh, this has been, it's far exceeded my expectations. I have to say part of that is because things that happened last week, um, the, the methane pledge, which has over a hundred countries that have signed on to that is huge. And we were starting to get calls several months ago in California with how did you do your methane in livestock? How did you do it in oil and gas? How did you do it in landfill? Um, So that's a huge thing for me. Um, People starting to see that we can do, we can do things. And the deforestation one, a renewed commitment on that. We know how important that is given our own um, situation on climate and just this, so many people are in the implementation phase. I know there's lots of talk, 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 but yeah. there were tons of discussions and all the breakouts that I participated in were about action and implementation. And that's where people are. The IPCC report that came out just a few short weeks ago, it was like code red. And I think people feel that sense of urgency. Kind of remind people what IPCC is. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's that Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a UN body that's been doing these reports on a consistent basis. And each one is a, is a stronger and stronger call to action because we're not meeting, we're not meeting what we had hoped to do with pledges to, to maintain global warming at below two Celsius. Yeah. You know, and, and until the last couple of weeks, it, it seems to me that methane's been 
kind of the minor villain. Uh, you know, what everybody's talked, they've gotten used to talking about climate, they're getting used to talking mm -hmm. about carbon and, mm -hmm. and methane, which has always been one of the, you know, really concerning greenhouse gases, right. hasn't been high profile villain, if you right. will. And, right. and, it's, and it's been getting a lot more attention mm -hmm. to say, okay, we need to focus on methane. Uh, certainly, we've got all the carbon issues and people need to right. drive less right. and alternate fuels and all these different right. things. But, right. but methane's really popping through. And with that has been the focus on agriculture. It's not the only mm -hmm. place we get methane, but certainly right. agriculture and livestock. Um, you've been in, in front of the curve. So mm -hmm. like a panel I heard you speaking on this morning, mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. able to say, well, here in California, we've seen this coming. We have a program. Uh, why don't you explain sure. what you tell other people and how they're reacting yeah. to what you've done in California? Yeah. So California passed a law in um, 2013 at SB 1383. And it set targets for methane reduction in livestock sector, in the oil and gas sector, in the landfill sector, really looked at black carbon, enteric fermentation, and, and methane emissions from livestock, and the oil and gas sector. And so for agriculture, it set a target of reducing our methane emissions 40% below 2013 by 2040. Um, and it also reinforce voluntary measures, incentive programs, but if we weren't on the pathway to achieving our targets, the Air Board is obligated to create a regulatory program to help get us there. So a tribute to our dairy families in particular, they have stepped into this space with the voluntary pro programs that we offer. We've invested as a state of California over $300 million that's actually matched by several hundred, like almost four or $500 million that's in private capital to develop dairy digesters that are creating renewable energy, electricity, low carbon fuels, uh, renewable natural gas, you know, that whole suite of things. And our dairy families have already, they're on the pathway of reducing um, livestock emissions by 57%. Um, we know that while the bill calls for also enteric fermentation reductions, we simply don't have the measures at this time for that. We are revisiting that through a task force on manure recycling and innovative byproducts um, because that's a highly valuable nutrient input for farming. We just have to figure out how to move it from where we have too much of it to areas that are spending a lot of money for synthetic fertilizer this year. That our dairy families have made huge progress in this and they've got great partnerships. With dairy digesters, last week I cut a ribbon on one that's from manure to fuel cell to electrifying the new BMW 100% electric SUV, and it's a gorgeous vehicle. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, that, you know, that, that's really, really intriguing. Now, in fact, I just saw something this last week that was talking about dairies, um, dairy farms across the country have been declining and it listed all these different states. And yes. there's been a lot of talk about how threatened the dairy industry yes. is in California. Yes. One thing I thought was notable on this last list is California wasn't on the list. It was a whole lot of other states for a change. We've talked so much about the yeah. change of dairies in yeah. California. Yeah. Yeah, you know, dairy is a volatile business. It's a global commodity. And so a little shift in global markets backs up the domestic market. Obviously, like everyone else, there were disruptions 
last year with COVID and all of a sudden you had to decide we've been bottling for the school lunch program. Do we pivot a supply chain to, to more retail? And people did once they figured out we were going to be in COVID for a while. Um, so really what we've seen across the country started to happen in California about a decade ago, as far as consolidation. Um, there have been some of the growth in the dairy that historically would have happened here is happening in other states because of cost of land, availability of water, ease of doing business. But our cow population at its peak was 2 million cows. We're right at about 1.7 million cows. The numbers of dairies each year, there's a few less, but we're not losing as many as fast as we did when we had the drought in the Midwest and our energy costs and our forage costs went sky high and really disrupted the dairy business model. But the rest of the country, a lot of the small people are not able to survive in this competitive environment. Well, let's go back to the to just a couple more dairy questions, and then we'll get more okay. about agriculture. And okay. and and so the the larger dairies that we have mm-hmm. here in mm-hmm. in California, uh, mm-hmm. were they able to get any funding? Was there help available for them? Absolutely, absolutely. So with our current funding that we've had since 2013, we have funded 117 dairy digester projects. Some of those are to generate electricity to operate the farm and the dairy. Some of those are the hub and spoke model where they're going into the natural gas pipeline as renewable natural gas to heat homes and run businesses. Um, And the most promising has been um, participating in the low carbon fuel standard, where this is going directly into the low carbon fuel standard and is really making a difference in cleaning up the air quality in the Central Valley, as well as lowering greenhouse gas emissions. So we have 117 projects around dairy digesters, and we have 116 projects for alternative manure management projects. That can be um, separating the lagoon water and those solids that have high nutrient value, um, creating the opportunity to do composting and selling it as compost, um, using it as as bedding pack, um, compost farms, or the dairies themselves. It's a more efficient way of applying that back to their own land for growing their own crops. So um, we've seen a real mix and really high participation from our dairy families. Well, in that area you're just now mentioning, seems to me that it goes back to some of the smaller dairies that um, we've got organic, we've got all kinds of local dairies in Northern California and some in the Central Coast as well. And they're able to participate even though they can't quite justify um, a methane digester. That's right. That's right. And, And they wanted to have those opportunities and that can make a big difference for them. You know, we tended to think of this is a waste stream and we've got to get rid of this waste stream. We're recognizing in a circular economy, we can repurpose, recycle, reuse. And this has a high value as a byproduct, as soil amendment, as organic compost, um, and, and who knows what other product development. So this task force that we've convened, I'm hopeful that the technologies have advanced enough that who knows what the products will be that we identify, but I'm very anxious for that group to do their work. Well, you had a great story to tell, and you've been officially on the program when it goes to methane. I imagine, though, that you get general questions, too, that people around the world are wondering, so what else are you doing for agriculture yeah. on the methane? Yeah. So what's what's your elevator yeah. speech? You're sharing it with people from 130 countries. Uh, sure. There must be a lot of interesting elevators. 
Yeah, there, there certainly are. The first panel I participated on this week is around water. And of course, our first Climate Smart Ag program was our on-farm water use efficiency program, the SWEEP program, which is about improving water use efficiency, reducing our energy use, um, and lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. That's still our most oversubscribed program. We have over the history of that program, we've invested $81 million for hundreds and hundreds of projects. In this year's budget, we have $50 million. We just released that request for proposals, and we will have $50 million in next year's budget for that program. So, you know, the fact that we're back in a drought, which is how this program got created, is that for healthy soils, where there's so much momentum behind that on a global basis, understanding that agriculture can draw down carbon build up that soil organic and their soil and, and increase water holding capacity, improve nutrient cycling, improve biodiversity. So there's a lot of momentum there. We have over the last three years of this program, we've invested $41 million. We have in this year's budget, $75 million. And we just released that grant program a week ago. And we will have $85 million in next year's budget for that program. We have continuation of the Sustainable Agland Conservation Program through the Strategic Growth Council. Um, the budget has, for the two-year period with the Air Board, over $323 million for the Farmer Program, which is engine replacement, $180 million for alternatives to open field burning. We have a new program for pollinator habitat, a total of $30 million for the next two years, and a new program for conservation planning in agriculture it can be a whole farm conservation plan, a carbon farm plan, a transition to organic plan. Um, so we're excited about the suite of programs that we get to offer to our growers. You know, Karen, have you gotten used to dealing with such big numbers? I know you were at the USDA <laughs> and you were dealing with a national budget, but you're talking about pretty big numbers. Uh, this, this is real investment. And it's possible because of how California set up the cap and trade system so that there's revenue to reinvest in our transition to carbon neutrality and, and to really support the transition and making that happen and a strong commitment um, for agriculture to be able to help lead on that. So you answered part of my next question because I was uh -huh. going to say, how do you fight for your share of the pie? And, and uh, oftentimes in government, agriculture mm -hmm. comes out at kind of the short end of the stick. Yeah. Uh, but to your credit, I'm sure in large part, that's not happening in California, that uh, agriculture is right in there. And I, and you answered part of that, I think, by saying mm -hmm. that it's tied to like the cap and trade program. Yeah. That these things can't just go off into other good programs to spend money necessarily. Right. It has to right. be contributing to the environment. So is that is that how you make the case to be sure agriculture is getting its share? Yes. And the fact that there are very few places where we can draw down carbon and store it in the soil. So we are actually mitigating as we adapt and build our resiliency by maintaining our productivity, by improving soil health, improving biodiversity, improving water holding capacity. So that's a unique attribute. And the one thing we know, Roger, based on studies that have been done about what happens if we don't keep this farmers on the land farming, A, it tends to impact food security. And that is a global issue that people have talked about a lot is that we need to keep farmers farming and being the good stewards of the land that they are because that's much more friendly for climate than 
conversion to more urban and intensive uses. And so, you know, there's a lot in this space for us to be investing in agriculture and the next generation of sustainable ag practices that our farmers incorporate. Now, one of your latest programs, I just want to mention it briefly, yeah. is, I think it's $70 million or something like that. Are these demonstration projects for soil for uh, for people to apply uh, for grants and show what they can do yeah. to be able to, yeah. to sequester crops? Yeah. This $75 million, it can be a combination. Um, the vast majority will be incentive grants directly to growers similar to the programs that they get through the Natural Resource Conservation Service. We have a suite of practices that they can decide which ones they want to use and a payment rate um, that's been established for that. And that's a direct grant to the grower to implement these practices. And then we do a verification of the practice. We also offer demonstration grants um, to, you know, uh, technical assistance providers that can be resource conservation district, cooperative extension. We've had county farm bureaus apply for that. And then we also invest in technical assistance for, for folks to reach out to those harder to reach communities where maybe English is not the first language. They're very small farmers. Um, and this is about helping them understand what is climate smart agriculture? What are practices that lend themselves to your particular farm? And then doing hands-on assistance to them to apply for the grants and do the paperwork that's involved with that. So the governor has been very clear. Let's, we don't always have these kinds of dollars available. Let's invest in a way that we're getting longevity out of what we're investing in. And building up that capacity for technical assistance is one way of making sure that at, over time, these practices will prove themselves out as business case but we know we need that technical assistance, just like we've always relied on cooperative extension. Yeah. Do the trials in my space so I can see. Don't tell me how to do these grasses and cover crops in Iowa. Show me how to do it in California or, you know, adding compost or how to do a carbon farm plan. So it's a combination of all of the above. But the vast majority is a direct payment to the grower for the commitment to implement the practice and maintain it for a three year period of time. You mentioned like cover crops in Iowa, and I, I, uh -huh. I think we should give a nod to them because we talk so much about all the great things we're doing in California. But in, in a lot of the Midwest, they, I think they may do a better job than we do uh, on cover crops. Their farming systems kind of, I'm talking to farmers and I've actually been back in the yeah. Midwest lately, and you're seeing people going in with a drill following combines yep. and yep. putting in cover crop immediately. Yep. We've yep. got an awful lot of bare ground left in the Central Valley. Yeah, well, Roger, I would remind you that Iowa is still mostly rain fed. My brother does that same kind of farming method, and he's been doing that for 17 years now in western Nebraska, but he doesn't have the same moisture content. And so we really are focused on what works in California, and the same cover crops are not going to work in California. And we're not going to put them in except for wintertime to take advantage of what we hope we hope will be rainy winter weather and we can still get great carbon and soil organic matter buildup by doing cover crops so everything has to be adapted farming is you know it's very place-based based yeah. on geography the climate the the precipitation patterns and everything that goes with it but you're right there are literally hundreds of thousands of acres of cover crops in the midwest just as there's contiguous acres of the same 
you know, soybeans and corn and those kinds of things. So yeah, we just need to do more trial work on our California soils and our California climate. Well, in in the meantime, a tip of the hat to the people in the Midwest because, the, like your like your brother, they've been they've been doing no till for a long time, and then they're, yeah. they're just going yeah. see with cover crops are really taking off, and and it's yeah. it's helping. One quick thing, and then I want to get back uh-huh. and wrap up with uh, COP twenty six and yep. and your takeaways yep. there. Um, can't have a conversation without mentioning the fact that we got water issues here. Huge and, drought, and as in spite of the fact we've had some rains lately. Um, it still looks like there's going to be um, a lot of land fallowed in in California. For is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, this is our first drought, and it's the most severe one we've had since the '70s, and maybe one of the most severe ever in history, yet to be determined. And it's the first drought where we're fully implementing the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Um, in our last drought, we saw an average of 500,000 to 650,000 acres fallowed each year. That's a common practice during drought. People will leave fields fallowed. And especially now with our water constraints and sigma, people are not only not planting annual crops, they are pulling out older orchards and vineyards. And so this is a signpost of what's in our future with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Um, we in agriculture want to minimize the acres that are fallowed to the extent that's possible, but we know that some, some of it, it will be fallowed. And so the legislature approved um, a proposal by the administration. We had proposed um, $500 million for land repurposing that would create alternative multiple benefits. We got $50 million in the budget. We will be standing up that program, if not by the end of the year, early next year. And we really want to be strategic. There's a lot of good collaboration in this space. Where does it make sense to fallow the land, the most marginal land, the land that may not have access to surface or groundwater, and be very strategic and work with full communities to make sure that when we make these decisions, we're not taking away from drinking water. We are doing what we can you know, to create some environmental benefits and some payments for that. Are there other economic returns through solar placement or alternative land uses without forcing it into urbanized development. Wow. Well, now let's go back to Glasgow. You haven't left there yet. I have uh, not. uh, And you're going to be heading back to California. We look forward to having you back home again, but happy you're over there. Give us uh, a kind of a wrap up with you, Karen. What What do you come back feeling having been in this experience yeah. thousands of people over there and I, I've been able to look at conferences and presentations around yeah. the clock and I've been having I don't know if anybody called you your excellency yet um, <laughs> not <I'm>, yet <laughs> I, I'm I'm keep seeing these people coming up and speak and say well I'm here for my country yeah. we're going to do this this and this and they yeah. all introduce them as your excellency so uh-huh. I think it's good not to get used to it it's probably just as well right. as you haven't yeah but they, Stay humble. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm not going to call you Your Excellency, but I will ask you, Secretary Ross, what's your takeaway? You've had this experience. You've spoken. You've listened to people. You're seeing people. So coming back, how do you feel about where we are with the mission and what's happened in COP26? Yeah, so I, I do feel that that California is on the right track, that that the opportunities for collaboration and partnerships are stronger than they've ever been. And that's the only way we can do this. 
It's not going to be one state or one country or one sector. It's going to take all of us working together. And I've seen more collaboration than I've ever seen in my very long career. Um, and I feel optimistic because people are focused on implementation, not just the talking at the meeting, how to, how do we do this? And so that creates these opportunities to connect. You know, we've been doing a lot more international webinars, California, with many of the partners that we've established relationships with around climate smart agriculture. We need to do that. The other thing that's been significant about this COP is the focus on financial commitments, because we know a just transition, uh, transition to carbon neutrality, making sure that we don't sacrifice food productivity is going to require significant investment. Secretary Vilsack was here this, this last weekend touting that, you know, they, they originally set out a goal to raise $4 billion in a partnership with the UAE. They reached that. And so they said, let's double our goal because we know it's going to take billions of dollars in transition and it's not going to happen overnight. And then let's align the research agenda. That's a hugely important way that we can all co collaborate is where are the research gaps that will really support agriculture in this journey and allow us to continue to nourish people while also being good stewards of the land and helping fight climate change. Well, that's a lot. And, and <laughs> I hope when you come back, you're going to be able to keep that enthusiasm up because I think the other, the final, the final challenge to us, maybe in agriculture, is that most of our folks are doing the right thing and they're heading the right direction, but they're a bit removed from that. You know, you're used to hearing people say, oh, well, you're California. California is regulating us out of business or California is, you know, this or that. So there's a, there's a lot of critics that jump on California, yeah. but you're also, uh, you're also a leader and and the state is is a leader i mean how are we going to yeah. overcome that uh, skepticism and get yeah. people recognizing yeah. what, what their role yeah. is in this? i mean i certainly understand it there's fatigue from you know we had trade and tariff wars for two years and then we would, are still in covid for two years and those disruptions now we've got the port issues and we're in a severe drought so i get the fatigue and the skepticism but i would say the whole supply chain is here and active. The whole supply chain understands that we're asking agriculture to do even more on the public benefits, which come from how they grow the food that they're selling into commerce. And so this recognition of farmers are creating public benefit, cleaner air, you know, the runoff that's clean and not impacting drinking water, storing carbon, all of these public benefits Folks are recognizing there needs to be payments, whether it's, you know, a shift in, you know, they're talking about it in Europe and the UK, a shift in their common ag policy that's about funding the public benefits and the conservation practices, not just the commodities. So I think we're at a very interesting time as the farm bill. Think about it. It's time to start working on another farm bill. I think we're going to have some of those discussions, but the market itself, the retailers, the food service folks are looking at at financial rewards that they recognize agriculture is producing a lot of multiple benefits and they, they should not bear the sole burden of that on their own shoulders. Well, and I'm going to say one more thing, and I don't know how many times I get away with saying one more thing, but there's one one more thing, and that is when I listen to some of these countries that their excellencies get up and make their presentation, <laughs> they're 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 talking about oh we got to stop eating meat or we've got to uh, 
do away with livestock. And that's and and the thing I like about the approaches that you're talking about mm -hmm. is that there's spaces for all agriculture, that it's not a question of cutting back on meat consumption or cutting back on livestock production. It's about doing it intelligently, doing, you know, smart grazing and, and methods right. digesters. And right. that, that right. you're taking the challenge and say the challenge isn't the type of farming, it's the way we do it and we can do it better. And we can do it better and, and consumers also have choices to make. And so, you know, all things in balance, as we know, the numbers that are almost intimidating for how we can feed a growing population and the protein demand, you know, we need to have all of the above choices for consumers create choices for farmers. So, you know, we just need to, we just need to listen to one another and approach all things with balance and, and do the best practices we can and rely on our farmers and ranchers because they know the land and they're going to help us solve these problems. Oh, I tell you what, Karen Ross, the Secretary of Agriculture in California. Karen, we're, we're really happy that you're representing California, representing the United States there, and I, and I think representing agriculture more, more broadly. And, and I'm sure people will be coming back to you um, and, and asking you for other advice. And do you give advice? I mean, do you end up finding countries that are saying, gee, I want to try this or that that's done in California, and they come to well, you? I mean, I, I don't know that it's advice. I just share with them our learning lessons, the importance of public engagement, engaging with your constituencies. Don't you know, sit in a room in a bubble and create programs, engage your stakeholders, and listen to all the voices and learn from us. A lot of it's worked. Some of it hasn't. And so I wouldn't call it advice, but I do like sharing and learning from them what they're doing as well. Well, and they can learn from you. And those that are listening today have learned again from you. And they can encourage <laughs> their friends and neighbors to go to wherever they find uh, their podcast and listen to Farmer <laughs> Table Talk, where this conversation will be up forever. Okay. <laughs> and so good to know. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, listen, hey, have a great trip home. We look forward to seeing you, you back in California. Thanks for your good work. And yeah. let's go. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Roger. I really appreciate it. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.